Venerable Master and Dharma friends, uh, this is April 27th. Welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. We're here in Berkeley, California, looking into the Ten Grounds chapter of the Avatamsaka, the Flower Garland Sutra. And we always start with chanting the name of the Sutra, invoking the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka assembly. You'll find it there on your cover of your text. Namo First things we ought to do is ask a volunteer, which in this case would be Thomas and uh, somebody, maybe Connie, to please take these windows and close them. It's going to get chilly here. Thank you. If you would please, in your text, right here, this is the one that should be in front of you, turn to page 18 and 19. All right. And on those pages, we want to turn down to look at uh, the Chinese is Ru Mo Ni Bao, Qing Jing Wang Lun. And then the English is, it's just like a Mani jewel. So if you're counting, it would be paragraph one, two, three, four in the English. Fourth paragraph. In the Chinese, it would be line one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Ru Mo Ni Bao. If you can read the, the Chinese characters, um, you'll recognize these. If, you, um, if you're new to Chinese characters, please appreciate their beauty. And we will be speaking the sounds that appear in, in uh, the alphabet just below them. So the first character is pronounced Ru, right? R-U. And that mark on top shows that it's a rising tone. So it's Ru. Then Mo is second, it's a rising tone, right, second tone. Ni, oh, it's a rising tone, three in a row. And then the fourth one, B-A-O-B-A-O, 
That's a third tone, falling and rising. So that's what we'll be doing. And if that's a bit of a challenge for you and you're not used to looking at, at uh, symbols like that, then when we get over to the other side of the page, you'll be right at home. because that's, that's our best approximation of what the Chinese characters mean in English. Okay, here we go. Now, this is the Buddha's words, so we put our palms together, and that's if you're comfortable doing that. If, if not, don't, don't feel forced. Here we go. I'll give you the line, you give it back. Ru mo ni bao, qing jing guang lun, neng fang guang ming, fei zhu yu bao, zhi suo neng ji, feng yu deng yuan, xi bu neng huai, Pusa moho sa, yi fu ru shi, zhu yu ci di, xia di pusa, so bu neng ji, zhong mo fan nao, xi bu neng huai. Okay, great. Look over to the right now. And we're going to read two paragraphs here. Let's do it together. Let's do it in, in unison. It's just like the Mani Jewel. Here we go. Ready? It is just like a Mani Jewel, a pure and luminous sphere that radiates a light that no other jewel can match. And no factors such as wind or rain and so forth can destroy. The Bodhisattva Mahasattva is that way as well. When he stays on this ground, the bodhisattvas of the grounds below are unable to match him, and none of the hordes of demons and afflictions can destroy him. Hmm, interesting. We're at the end of the fourth ground, the fourth stage of the bodhisattva's ten stages. And so this bodhisattva is well on his way. He's uh, one, he's more than a third of the way up towards Buddhahood. And what this gives us is an idea that, that um, in, in Buddhism, in Buddhist practice, once you start cultivating, once you start actually practicing, then there is, it is a bit of a line. It's a bit of a straight line. Um, there's skill that you learn and every bit that you learn takes you further along the line towards your goal. And what would it be like? Um, it's kind of like, if I don't know if anybody has practiced martial arts, uh, but it's kind of like when you, if let's say you're practicing judo, karate, taekwondo, um, you go through forms and then you go through sparring, and then you get your belts, and you go from white belt to yellow belt to brown belt, to, or to green belt to brown belt to black belt, and then the various levels. Aikido is the same. That's the martial arts world. If you're not a martial artist, you've certainly been to school. And you go from preschool, kindergarten, or daycare, preschool, kindergarten, elementary school, junior high, and where I came from, it was junior high, high school, and then 
university and, and on up. And it's a natural growing progression. And while the bodhisattva path is not competitive, there's not a sense of that you are, there's nothing to win when you get to the end, but it's just that as you learn more, you are, your capacity is bigger, your abilities are bigger, your functions are bigger, your, your scope is bigger. So there is a, a line that you, that you progress along. While on the other hand, it's circular because it's all returning. Still, you can measure it. So we have the fourth ground here. Bodhisattva is at the end of the fourth ground. We're just about to reach the verses that reprise, that repeat the uh, principles ahead. So here's the Bodhisattva at, at the end of the fourth ground. And these, this text has a structure, a little bit of a structure to it, which is each ground has a pattern that comes back. And we're in that part. We're in the pattern part. So each of the grounds, bodhisattvas, has uh, some certain things that we measure by. We learned uh, last time that the bodhisattva is like gold, that a, a skillful goldsmith puts in the fire and smelts and smelts. And, and I'm, I'm certainly not a jewelry maker, but I'm told by friends who are that um, smelting gold is a little bit like magic. Because why? You're purifying it, but you don't change its weight. Things come out of it. You, you get the impurities out, but the, uh, the final product is, is just like what went in, only more so. It's, it's more gold than it was before. Because you're taking the dross, the sludge, the uh, imperfections out of the gold through the fire. And it's, a, it's an intense process. And the, uh, the sutra uses it as an analogy for cultivation. So as we practice the Buddha's path, as we put in, into practice these practices, what we get at the end is more of us than ever before, but at the same time, there's less of us than we had when we started. And what's less is the ignorance, the afflictions, the troubles, the blues, the worries, the fears, the attachments, and those things smelt like gold in the fire into something that is purely, essentially Buddha nature. But our, you could say our atomic weight doesn't change in the process. So it's a little bit magic. There's, there's something special going on here. And once you start digging down into it, what you discover is these bodhisattvas have intense effort in generosity, intense effort in morality, intense effort in patience, if you can imagine being effortly, effortfully patient. Work hard at your patience. And this is stage four, which in that scheme is vigor or strength. This bodhisattva is hardworking, works hard, moves, boogies, wears tennis shoes, keeps moving, doesn't rest, and doesn't get fatigued. Gets, gets fatigued but doesn't quit. Kind of like what? Like a mom, right? Like moms. Moms don't say, no, I'm sorry, it's 3 a.m., you deal with your own wet bed, you know. You got colic, that's not my problem, you know. You, you figure it out. Change your own diaper. I'm sick of this. Moms don't do that. Moms go, oh, okay, okay let's do it. You know, they don't think about what, what, what it will cost them tomorrow morning. They just do it. The bodhisattvas that way too. They just keep moving. Tired or not, they keep moving. 
So we're in that section where each stage of the bodhisattva path gets, gets measured by these kind of uh, poetic but um, real-world examples. Gold, like a goldsmith, is something that the cultures of India 2,500 years ago were familiar with. The cultures of uh, the North American commercial gold market is familiar with in the year 2013. And the price is falling, but who's paying attention? Who's in charge of that? We, we won't go into that. So here comes another analogy. This is on our third paragraph. What's it say? Ru moni bao, qing jing guang lun, neng fang guang ming, fei zhu yu bao, zhu so neng ji, feng yu deng yuan, xi bu neng huai. It's just like a mani jewel, a pure and luminous sphere that radiates a light that no other jewel can match and no factors such as wind or rain and so forth can destroy. Let's cough here. <coughs> it's tricky when the microphone's right there. Cough into the microphone, please. Um, what is a mani jewel? Here's, uh, every now and then our sutra reminds us that we're not, it wasn't spoken in 2013. It's not, it wasn't aimed exactly at a contemporary audience. So we have to kind of bridge over to a culture and a time different from our own. And I, I highlight that because most of the time I'm trying to do exactly that. I'm trying to contemporize, to upgrade, to modernize these sutras, to make them not modern but timeless so that they don't sound like an old Indian book that happened to go through Chinese before it gets to us. How hard that would be to make sense of an old Indian book that passed through a Chinese filter before it comes to us. Right? If we do that, then it's never going to make sense. It's just too far away, too old. So, here, every now and then, though, it's kind of hard to, to avoid that because why? What's a mani jewel? Well, a mani jewel is, according to the text, and I don't think I've ever held one, I don't think I've ever seen one, but the sutras are full of them, and particularly the Avatamsaka uses them all the time. This is a spiritual jewel. It's a, a gem stone that um, appears in the heavens all the time. If you have the blessings of the gods, you see mani jewels all the time. And they have qualities. What are their qualities? One is indestructible. Cannot be cracked, smashed, cut, tarnished. They're indestructible. They're the hardest thing. Uh, sometimes they're translated as diamond, which is one of the hardest of substances in our world. But it's not a diamond precisely because it's not a, an earthly gem. Uh, what else? They're radiant. They're luminous. They're, uh, they have their own illumination. And they're pure. Manis are pure. So if you, let's see. I'll show you a mani jewel. Look at Urstor Bodhisattva right there. See his, his left hand? He's got that blue pearl in his palm, that's a mani jewel. Okay, move your eyes right over to the right. See the green thing that's got the dragon all entranced? That's a mani pearl. So at least we have two here, right here in the Buddha hall right now. And, oh, 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 let's look over here. See our yellow dragon, golden dragon? See the, the green, blue, turquoise thing down at the, that's a mani jewel. There's three. Is there one on the red dragon? I can't see. 
Green Dragon's got one too. So we got at least five Mani jewels right here in the Buddha Hall. And you guys didn't even know that. Surrounded by Mani pearls. Yeah. Sometimes called Mani pearls. Sometimes called Mani jewels. They're depicted as round, but Mani is a substance. It's not just a... That's after it's been worked on, I think, that it comes pearl-shaped. So Manis are precious gem substances that can be made into other things. And because they're uh, indestructible, how could you work on it if it's indestructible? That's a problem, isn't it? What kind of tools would you have to have to fashion? And it oh, broke my chisel. Oh. What do you do? So they're always being given to the Buddha and bodhisattvas as, uh, as offerings because they're, they're so valuable. And so here's our challenge. We, um, we can look at these as something mythical or magical or, um, what do you say, part of the spiritual realm that is not part of our world and therefore fantasy. You say that's fantasy. Somebody might say that's baloney, meaning made up. Um, that's one way to look at it, but that's not as valuable. It's not as, as enriching as if we say there are all kinds of things that exist beyond our senses that are completely real and there, but we're not tuned to them. One would be gravity. We see its effects every, every minute, but it's, we, it has no shape, no form, no weight. Um, what else? Your imagination. In your mind, which is maybe depicting Mani jewels right now, is absolutely real. Nobody would want to do without it, but show it to me. Right? What color is it? Not. So there is a lot that is real but non-material. And Mani jewels are somewhere in that realm. I would give you another one. What about dragons? How are we doing with dragons? Do you have a relationship with dragons? Well, you've probably seen more dragons in this room than almost anywhere else in downtown Berkeley, is my guess. But where are they? Well, St. George and the dragon is part of European mythology, for sure. Mythology meaning stories we live by, stories that shape us. Um, every culture in the world has these uh, beings that are semi-real, they're, mm, we know about them, we talk about them, they're in our history of stories, but science can't find them. So, the Mani pearls are right in that same realm. They're things we know about, hear about, to want to pin one down, to, to show it to me, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge. So, that's, that's uh, for me, uh, that makes the sutras more flavorful, I don't know. It's not necessarily a cause for you to say, oh, therefore this is a phony book. Therefore I reject this as being uh, not true. You know. Of course, that's your choice, but um, it won't be as, it won't talk to your heart if that's the way you address it. Um, if we can do something like suspend judgment, don't have to say yes, don't have to say no, don't have to say true, don't have to say false, but park it, on the, put it on, in a pot on the stove and let it boil or let it simmer better. It'll, it'll boil dry. Let it simmer on the stove in your mind until you learn more.
Um, I will say that all of the perfectly normal men and women who practice the Buddhist, uh, practice the Dharma until they wake up, certify, verify that this is, in fact, something real. It's more than just a story. This is someone whose eyes and ears are sharpened to another degree who verify, certify, in fact, this actually exists. So that's, uh, that's how I deal with it. And it makes, as I say, it makes the sutra very flavorful. It makes it come alive in a new world. All right. Mani jewels. It's just like a mani jewel. What's it like? What are they like? A pure and luminous lun, a sphere, a wheel, a round sphere, spherical thing that radiates a light no other jewel can match. Mani gems are supposed to be um, exceedingly bright, right? They, they shine. They send out light. No factors such as wind and rain, etc. can destroy it. Nothing will touch a mani jewel. They're adamantine. They are hard. They're indestructible. They're brilliant, like diamonds, but not diamonds. They are diamond-like, all right? So, that's the Mani Jewel. Um, There is a place where Mani Jewels get bridged over to. And I'm talking about the 42 hands and eyes. There's a special means of practice that our teacher um, brought to the West that belonged to Guanyin Bodhisattva. They're called the 42 hands and eyes. And they're, they're in that realm of practice called great compassion dharmas, da be fa. And there's a handful of practices like those. The great compassion mantra is one of them and others. And among the 42 hands and eyes, there's one that's called the, the rui ju shou, the wish-fulfilling gem hand. It's number one, as a matter of fact. And it's a mani pearl. It's, it's what Erstor Bodhisattva is holding in his hand. And the teaching says that if you cultivate that practice and put your mind to it and really focus, and if you're a good-hearted, virtuous person who has uh, light in, in your heart and goodness, then over a period of time, that pearl becomes real. You can actually see it. Uh, it, it manifests. Now, um, I can't verify that. It's not my experience. But... I'm told that that is the case. And there are certainly people who have done that. So, here we are. Let's, let's do a reality check. We're looking into a 2,500-year-old text. This has been on the planet in a mid-human knowledge for, for that long. And certainly the Vedas have been here longer. That's true. But what else did you touch today that comes anywhere close to being this old? So, in other words, the consciousness of humanity that we bear with us, that brought us forward into the 21st century, has had these ideas guiding it and shaping it for a very long time. Right? This is an influential book, influential set of ideas. We come from it. It's not the other way around. Right? Pe- people are shaped by our texts. That's why they're, they're called Sutras, 
classics, 经典 right? They, here we go again. Where's the mic? There we go. <coughs> Excuse me. These are the the things that shape the culture. We we build our lives around these founding texts, and so here are these notions that you had to speak, you had to read Sanskrit or speak Chinese or Korean to get to them in any before now, but our teacher came to explain these. That was one of his major priorities. To Uh, bring these forward, and now we're translating them into English and bringing them out and looking at them. So as we do that, some things are clearly just Buddhist wisdom, and it's we're not at that point. We can't quite get there. Samadhi, right? Prajna. We're working on that, but some of them are completely part of our day. Goodness, harmlessness, ahimsa, that notion. The uh, the Goodness in the heart that brings forth the precepts, non-harming. Those are completely with us. They're, it's our conscience, you know, the voice inside that says yes, no. Good idea, bad idea. I wouldn't do that if I were you. I told you not, oh, here it comes. You did it and you deserve that, you know. That voice that's keeping, keeping track of our words and our thoughts. That's part of our life and the sutra's here. But then... There are these dharmas that are at the place where those two meet, where the 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 world beyond the senses and the mundane world touch, and every now and then that curtain just kind of slides open and things shift. And mani jewels are one of those things that, like dragons, right? They're kind of at the edge of our consciousness, but most people would go fairy tale, fantasy land, right? Well. Game of Thrones. Anybody watch Game of Thrones? Nobody watches Game of Thrones. I know that. Television is not what Buddhists do, right? However, popular culture talks about these things, and it's good to pay attention. Game of Thrones first season ended with the arrival of three dragons, and the entire uh, mythical world that uh, George Martin, in his books, gave us hinges on dragons. And as people read them, we go, "Huh, dragons!" Hmm. And we're ready to learn more about dragons because why? They're not very far from our conscience. They're kind of at the borders. And the sutras, when you touch the sutras talking about dragons, they'll tell you the names of the dragons and what realm they live in, who are the kings of the dragons, how to become a dragon. And they say, "You don't want to." But there's a way to do it. There's an amazing teaching about the afflictions that dragons have. You want to hear what it is? The dragons, they're they're, they're scaly, right? Dragons have scales, and so they, uh, their their scales are hard to hard to clean, and so the dragons go down if they're. They're water dragons. They come onto the shore. If they're space-flying dragons, they come down to the ground and they they rub their scales, and grains of sand get in between the scales and they irritate. So dragons are always having this affliction of sand in their scales. It says, and it's like you go, oh, that sounds just like my mother-in-law. I just know that she's just you know psoriasis. You know she's always. You know, no, we go, yeah, I identify with dragons that have 
sand in their skin. How human that could be. And they talk about the different varieties of dragons. And sometimes dragons are profoundly wise. They, in fact, there's a traditional story. Why are we talking about dragons? We got in the Mani Pearl, right? We went a little pretty far into the... Okay, sorry about that. But there's a lot of dragon lore in the Avatamsaka. The Avatamsaka Sutra is said to have been kept in the palace of the dragon king whose name was Sagara. Sagara is the, the, uh, the dragon king of the ocean. And uh, I'm not sure which one Sagara is, but this, the Pacific is that way. Those are the hills. That's east. This is west. So it's one of those, either the green or the red. Which one is Sagara? You'll have to get wisdom before we'll tell you. Don't know which one. But Sagara, the dragon king of the ocean, um, kept the Avatamsaka Sutra in his library down in the Dragon Palace until humanity was ready to read it, which was not right away. We weren't ready, according to the tradition. Okay, so there's one of those, huh, oh yeah, stories. So a lot about dragons. And the point I was making was that these sutras challenge us in many ways. First of all, they set a high bar for goodness, for virtue, for integrity, for truthfulness, for kindness. That's a pretty high standard, the bodhisattva's standard. Um, yet that's close at home, it's encouraging us to be better people. It uh, is, when I read the sutras, I get touched in, in places that kind of echo down the corridors of my mind, it's kind of like, oh yeah, I think I used to know that, but I forgot. Or, oh, that's painfully true, but I covered it over. That's too true to be, to, for me to face, because it's like, mm, I, I turned my back on that a long time ago. But it's still there, and it echoes, it does that. But it also takes us to this place where science can't measure Right, And the challenge to us is, does that mean it's, quote, false if science can't measure? And that's an important question. Right? Science is a relatively new way of thinking about reality. Science has many, many answers to questions we've, we've asked for a long time, but it has its limits and limits of consciousness. If you have to name it, if you have to think of it before it's real, life is poorer than if you admit some of the things that are not measurable. Happiness, for example. Right? Emotion, for example. So, this is just to say, when we get, this is one of those places that's right on the border between measure and story. So, power of story. Okay, just like a money jewel. Now, next paragraph down. The Bodhisattva Mahasattva is that way as well. When he stays on this ground, the Bodhisattvas of the grounds below are unable to match him. None of the hordes of demons and afflictions can destroy him. Now, there's an idea. Why would demons and afflictions try to destroy a bodhisattva. 
right? Think about that. Sounds like a, you could have a movie. Does anybody read manga? Japanese cartoons? No, nope. just out of curiosity. Anybody? Anybody read manga? Okay, yeah, 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 yes, manga. Okay, good, right. Uh, sometimes, yeah. Now, there's a lot of manga you don't want to read, but there are some that are quite wonderful. And they're Japanese comic books. And it's not like Marvel comics. When I was growing up, it was Mickey Mouse. Uh, there were a lot of Walt Disney comics. And then there was something called Comics Illustrated. Remember, that would take like Ivanhoe and the great... Anybody read Comics Illustrated growing up? Western, you know, classic books that were illustrated. Those are great. They were an introduction to uh, uh, King Arthur, for example, Knights of the Round Table. So in Japan, manga became a huge uh, genre of literature. And Japanese artists just had this incredible ability to, to bring, um, to, I guess, what would you say? It's, it's a way of looking at the world. You know that photography is looking through a rectangle, mostly. You see the world through your viewfinder or through the back of the camera, through your phone now. iPhone is the most popular camera in the world. You hold the camera up and that, that rectangle is what takes the picture. Japanese manga, M-A-N-G-A, which is the Japanese pronunciation of manhua, the Chinese word meaning cartoon. So the cartoon, Japanese cartoonists, in their frame, they drew the world in a way that showed us, number one, Japanese visual imagination, but many people affirmed that, yes, this is a way I want to, to see the world too. So manga became this hugely popular genre to the point, to the point that um, Japanese culture totally embraced manga and uh, there was a, uh, um, uh, the Japanese government produced um, a series of pamphlets, what was it, designed to show people how to vote, a new way of voting, and they did it entirely with manga. So public information in Japan is now distributed via cartoons because it's so totally intermeshed with their culture. All right, did you see the movie The Matrix? People saw The Matrix, what, 10 years ago, right? The Wachowski brothers who produced The Matrix are profoundly influenced by manga. And so many of the scenes in The Matrix were done expressly from the point of view of manga, where the hero is in the corner, greatly exaggerated. You know, Neo is here in the corner, and, and uh, he's, his fight with Agent Smith and all. That's all manga stuff percolated down into Western culture, so bit by bit. And now the, uh, we've gone to anime. Anime is manga movies. So that's another whole side of Japanese culture where they, they made movies, moving pictures, manhwa. So the point of that is to say, in the manga, the, one of the common themes is human interaction with evil. These stories are almost always moral tales. Good and evil. What do you do faced with evil? What choices do you make when you could do something really bad? And 
evil is always manifest in some character who's out to destroy. And they look demonic, often. So, and the funny thing is they're often said in high school because a large, a huge audience is high school kids. That's when you, about 10 or 11, you start to, your own imagination starts to objectify and see things in terms of pictures and questions and challenges. So uh, many of the manga are set in high school and anime. So there's always some classmate who secretly is a devil. He's a demon. And he, can, he has tremendous power and he's out to destroy, take over the world. <laughs> and there's always a good guy, you know, who has secret powers and he's ready to defeat the evil, you know. He's heroic or she's heroic sometimes. The, the heroes are often girls. So um, there, that whole story is to say, here's a bodhisattva who what? Is face to face with choices as he, she progresses along the bodhisattva path. Now, we may not know about that. Why? Because we're not fourth stage bodhisattva, fourth ground bodhisattvas. What do we know about? We know about temptation. There's the word. And some of you are going, oh no, what's he going to talk about? Ice cream, chocolate, coffee, cigarettes? So, food, ah, anybody who's tried the diet, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I guess probably a lot of folks on that side of the room maybe might raise their hand if I said, who has experimented with dieting at some point? Um, Dharma Master, since I was 15, I've been on a constant diet. Oh man, what a lot of pain that is. Um, So, when when we diet, what are we telling ourselves? We're saying... I will apply choice to something natural, which is intaking nutrition into my body. And choice implies that there's a right choice and a wrong choice. So what happens if the wrong choice is wrong because you like it a lot and it tastes really good, but it produces an effect that you don't want, which would be body image that doesn't suit the current trend, whatever that might be, and it changes. Okay, then what do you get? You have a voice in your head that goes, wouldn't you like that? Have it just a little. You already you didn't have any for the last, you, you deserve a break. What about a treat? You've been good. You know, that little voice, that's the temptation voice. And what is it tempting? It's asking you to fudge on a promise you made. It's setting up a conflict in your mind. And, by golly, that conflict is so powerful that we get things called anorexia, bulimia, eating disorders. Not a joke at all. Right? One of my good friend's daughter, sweet young girl, all her life, when she got to high school, she discovered that food was her enemy because it would make her unpopular according to her understanding of how she was supposed to be and who she was, she stopped eating. She wound up in the Stanford Eating Disorder Clinic weighing 90 pounds, you know, at five foot four, and nearly died and took her parents through a nightmare of, you know, please eat. 
And this happened three times until currently she, the, the, the voice in her head went away. So now she's eating again. But to have your daughter die because she refuses to eat is pretty scary if you're a parent, right? So what was it? It was a fight in her head, a constant battle in her head between something she told herself and maybe her body's saying, I need food. Give me food. So there's, there's that voice, right? There's the temptation. Now, we're talking about the daily task of feeding your body. That's pretty, pretty close to hand. What about if you're a bodhisattva cultivating the bodhisattva path and you are meditating and you can really meditate and when you meditate you enter samadhi you get this state of stillness and purity and concentration and a voice comes into your head and says you are already a Buddha why work so hard didn't you hear the Buddha say that All living beings have the Buddha nature. All can become a Buddha. You're there. Why meditate like this? You're just a loser. Who else is meditating? You know, is anybody else meditating like you? Nah. Come on. Give yourself a break. Right? And this little voice. And maybe you're like wading through the pain of your knees. And your knees are on fire as you meditate. And you're thinking, you know, this is really painful. You're just sitting there waiting for the pain to go away. And waiting and waiting and waiting. It's been half an hour and the pain is just like the first five minutes. It's now worse. And you go, I think I will. And you drop your legs. Suddenly that voice is gone and all the, all the pressure is gone too that was moving you towards the next tiny increment of progress. You know, It's like food. Okay, Let's say you're baking a cake and the cake is halfway baked and you turn the oven off. What happens to the cake? It's wet dough, right? You don't, like, how do you start it again? Same thing. Only it's not eating disorder. It's the promise of becoming a Buddha. And your desire to listen, to to let the pressure off, is strong enough that this little voice, right? So, my point of illustrating it this way is to say what I understand from my teacher and from other stories that I've read is when you are involved in something wholesome that requires you to change and kind of, as they say, row the boat upstream, to go against the grain, to strike out on your own away from the well-beaten path, it's full of tests. Every step is full of tests, full of chances to retreat and to go back to before, normal. It's hard. (coughs) Sherful would say, Master Trenhua would say, it's like rowing a boat upstream. As soon as you stop rowing, you go backwards. As long as you make the motions and keep it steady, the stream is coming like this. Anybody ever try to row a boat upstream? That's really hard work, right? As soon as you relax on the oars, back the boat goes, right? 
to keep moving, you have to, you know, keep this this motion going, steady. And if you keep it steady, you go like this. The progress is almost hard to tell. As soon as you rest, back you go. Cultivation is just like that. But so is everything. It takes effort. It's, it's work to change. Most of us don't want to change. And who is it that wins if we don't change? Well, if we give it a face and a name, we would say the powers of darkness or negativity. The, the forces in the planet that want things to be the same. And what is the same? Ah, okay. Before I go there, I just want to own that Buddhism does talk about good and evil. There is a cosmic side to, to the Buddha's teachings that we don't have to pay attention to. We don't have to keep it in front of our eyes all the time. But at some point, when you ask bigger, deeper questions, you find it. The Buddha, if, if you look into his life, from his life forward, there are these encounters with Mara, the demon king, personified, made into a person, right? And you remember the little Buddha? Anybody see Bertolucci's film? Little Buddha, Keanu Reeves under the tree, remember? Remember? That's one of the memorable, actually that was one of my favorite parts of the film, was the story, the depiction of, of the Buddha under the tree as he's facing uh, Mara's daughters and then the armies come. And then, so using kindness and compassion, Siddhartha the prince, played by Keanu Reeves, and does a good job. All people were hard on him. I thought he was fine. You know, that's a hard, hard role to play. I thought he looked like a good prince. So Keanu is there. The daughters come and he shows them their own humanity and that they're going to lose their looks and that they had better cultivate. So they, they retreat. They forget to try to seduce him. Then the demons come. By the millions, right? And the arrows are coming right at him and his kindness turns them into lotuses. And the arrows fall and the demons all go, this guy's too tough, let's go. You know, and away they go. Then Mara shows up. And who does he look like? He looks just like Keanu Reeves. He looks just like the prince. And he challenges him. He says, who says you are about to wake up? Who says you're enlightened? Who can testify? Who will verify? It's just a fantasy, right? Says Keanu, looking at himself. Because Mara is good at shape-shifting. He's a shapeshifter, right? The Antichrist is there. So Keanu says, the earth is my, my, my testimony. The earth will testify. It touches the earth. And the earth quakes. Because equally with the forces of darkness, there are forces of goodness in the world that want people to wake up and all things to wake up. Having a Buddha around is a help. It's a benefit. To have this source of goodness and light and truth and wisdom and kindness in the world. So the earth verifies, in fact, this person is awake. He's done the hard work. His self 
is gone. He's broken through. He's transformed the darkness. And Mara, at that point, resumes his original shape and goes, Curses! Foiled again. My life has just been made much harder, says the Mara, the demon king. So, Buddhism from the founding of our story says, yeah, you know, darkness is there. There is evil in the world, and it's got a name, and we know it's where it lives, and its address. We probably know its email address, too. And they are, it is, always wanting to stay in charge of what goes on in the world. If you want to find its address, it has something to do with .gov. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Shouldn't say things like that. Are you listening? They're going to pop me off YouTube if I name names, right? So, are they all Republicans? Or no, are all Republicans part of it? Never mind. And a few tea parties. So, so anyway, there is Buddhism from beginning to end talks about good and evil, and it does so in specific ways. But that's useful for us or not useful? What, it, if you think about it all the time, it'll certainly drive you nuts. And people will say, God, these Buddhists are just weird. They're always talking about demons and devils and possession and things like that. And I know people who do, who love that kind of stuff. Um, I think it makes you morbid. I think it pollutes your brain if you are always focused on cosmic evil. Um, so what do we do when we get a line of text that says none of the hordes of demons and afflictions can destroy him? Mm. The hordes of demons. It says, Okay, here's what I do with it. And I'll propose this and see what you all think. Um, Master Hua said to us that um, tests don't end. The higher you go, the harder the tests. And he would say, he said, you think it's easy being the Shurfu? You think Shurfus have a picnic? The heart, the, he said, the, once you really set out to practice in earnest, the tests are endless. They're different than your test your test is, do I want a second piece of chocolate cake at lunch? That's your test. He said, my test is, what do I do when the disciple who I've given my life and blood and sweat and chi to says, Shurfu, I think I want to return to lay life and get married. That's my test. What do I do? Do I say, fine, this is your karma. You know, I'll do the wedding. <laughs> or do I say, oh. <laughs> right? The, the, the kind of nurturing that it takes to get somebody to make the Bodhi resolve. How hard, how many steps, how many changes does it take to get somebody from normal, you know, beer drinking, dope smoking, uh, manga watching, reading, you know, uh, after evening ben binging American kid to come and take refuge. What is, how hard is that? To take the precepts and mean it. 
How hard is that? How many changes have the person has to step away from friends to hold the precept? Right? What is going backwards on the stream? Christmas party. What if your Christmas party is Reno? Your, your company rents the floor of a hotel in Reno every Christmas. You've been going along and you've been progressing up through the ranks of the company. And this year you say, no, I'm not going to Reno. I took the precepts. Are there career implications there? Does that result in no more promotions? Got to make those decisions. How hard is it to take the precepts and hold them? Right? You have to say, actually, I will take the vegetarian option. How hard is that? Right? Well, we have, we have salad, olives, celery. We'll put some peanut butter in the celery for you. You know, yeah, I'll take the vegetarian. And everybody else is like, yeah, give me the filet. I want the braised ribs, the baby back spare ribs. What? You know, barbecue. No barbecue? That's, that's downright un-Texan. You can't eat barbecue because you're a Buddhist. Who wants to be a Buddhist, right? So those are the choices you have to make. And then at that point they say, no, I want to leave home, Sherfu. And you work them, work them, and then they say, no, I'm going to return to Layla. Right? And the teacher goes, see you next life. Zai lai. Jai oh. You know, it's a long process. The tests are harder when you're a Sherpa. It's not that suddenly life is easy. Look at the Buddha. The Buddha had multiple attempts on his life by his relatives. <laughs> What's it like being a Buddha? Right? The sixth patriarch had people poison him repeatedly. They were so jealous of the fact that this Barbarian from the south, they probably talk Chinese like this, you know. I'm, I'm here to uh, pound rice in the back of the monastery and, uh, you know, cultivate the way. You know, and they ah, you're the one. No, not him, man. He's a hick. He's a rube, right? No, he's the one. <laughs> I'm going to speak the Dharma of emptiness. <laughs> Got to cultivate the way, you know. <laughs> okay, we hear the Dharma from a Southerner, you know. So yeah, the sixth patriarch was a southern barbarian. You know, he couldn't even read. Well, show me the pictures. You explain it to me and I'll tell you what it means. You read it to me, I can't read it, but I'll tell you what it means. Yeah, yeah. I hope you all put an end to birth and death. <laughs> right, that's the sixth patriarch, dude. You know, <laughs> yeah, Bodhidharma shows up. And Emperor Liang, Emperor Wu of the Liang dynasty, says, this guy's, he's black. Bodhidharma was black-skinned and pissed off the emperor. The emperor sent him away, right? Oh, no, I just sent off the patriarch. So it's tough. It's tough. You think that it's easy, you know. The higher you go, the harder it gets, so they say. So... Demons, difficulty. It's not easy because why? What's easy is greed, anger, and delusion. It's there. Greed, anger, delusion, pride, and doubt is completely in our nature if we open to it. 
And precepts, concentration, and wisdom requires effort. It's hard. And it's there if we open to it. The difference is one leads to light and to awakening. One leads to darkness and the same old. Same old. Another way to to bring it home is we don't have to do anything at all and we will certainly die. Right? It's just part of being in a world where dharmas are born of conditions. Look at these incredibly beautiful roses right up here on the on the table. These roses are amazing. They're just they're spectacular roses. Perfect. You know, who could make such a thing? And yet, come back in four days, you're gonna go, oh, let's change these. Got some fresh ones? You know. They're like that. So that's the, that's the nature of conditioned things is they move towards scattering. Cheng zhu, huai kong, coming into being, stasis, entropy, and gone, coming back one more time, around again. That's the nature of conditioned things. So that's in there. We don't have to do anything and that's going to happen. So the prince, that was the big deal about our story is the prince says, I'm not satisfied. That's not good enough. Said Siddhartha, right? Gautama, the prince. And thank goodness he did that. That was where Buddhism began. Was some guy, some human said, not good enough. I'm not content with entropy. Just letting it go and breaking up. I wonder if it'll stop. I wonder if there's a, an exit to that cycle. That was what started our whole story, was one person saying, I wonder if there's a door out. He didn't know. No promise, no guarantee whatsoever. And he worked sorting through scientifically, sorting the evidence of all the various methods, and said, there is a one, there is one, there's a key, and it has to do with desire. And you got to do that right too. Because why? He tried to cut off desire by starving himself. He associated desire and food. I'll cut off food, cut off desire. Discovered can't cut off desire. Desire won't cut off. You can transform it. The middle way was born. So the middle way between extremes was the ultimate method. And sure enough, over time, he did it. He said there is a gate beyond birth and death, and here's how it works. So that was the challenge. Now, there's, <coughs> they say that when somebody wakes up, the earth is so happy that it shakes. There are all these amazing stories about nature's support for that going upstream. That, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, we've talked about, about that before. There's something called virtue. the right? Punya, virtue. And there's ordinary virtue of uncovering your nature. But they say there is sheng, the, there's sublime virtue. There's ec- excellent virtue. That when somebody reaches that state of excellent virtue, the power of that can influence the environment. To the point where they say flowers come down, 
from the heavens. There can be rain that is sweet, they say. There can be earthquakes and noises. And again, this is another one of those permeable membrane. Science and discursive logic says, uh-uh, never heard of that, never measured it. Show me where that happened. And the world of awakening says, absolutely, this is true, but it's rare. It's special. They say, here's one, the Chinese, if nothing else, are excellent historians. The Chinese have always been writing stuff down. Always. And histories go back, you know, way back. We know the names of people who did things back in the, the Zhou, you know, and, and who they were married to and what, what agreements they made. So, in the Tang Dynasty, when the Avatamsaka, our sutra's third patriarch, Fa Zhang Bichou, when Dharma Master Fa Zhang translated the first Avatamsaka, the Jin edition of the, of the Avatamsaka, also known as the 60 scroll Avatamsaka, when he finished it along with the help of the Empress, Wu Zetian. She was the, the female emperor. She was the queen of China at the time. She was there for a lot of his work. When he presented it to her, they say there was a rainfall in China that was sweet. And it happened for 60 Li around. And there are multiple citations of it. People, weathermen in China, all over China, went, this happened for 60 miles. There, there was a ganlu. This, this rain fell out of season and it was sweet. And it was a, people say it was a portent of nature going, good thing, way to go. Sutra translated. That the gods, the dragons, the spiritual dharma protectors were so happy that the Avatamsaka was available to the Chinese readership that nature responded. So we hear that and we go, no. Would that be on Channel 7 weather? Would they report it? I don't know. In China, they did. Not one like biased historian, Buddhist historian, no. Just like impartially over China, people went, this happened. You can find it. You go back in the history, there it is. You know, it's like, oh, huh, all right. What do you do with that? So, interesting, interesting. So, that's the good responding. The hordes of demons don't want the fourth stage bodhisattva to succeed. They respond and they try to stop him, her. Okay? And what else will stop you? Afflictions will destroy your progress. Meaning what? You quit. You get depressed. You get so hungry, so lonely, so discouraged that nobody's paying attention to you or what you think is real, that you quit. And that will stop progress too. So, hordes of demons would be external pressure pushing against you. Afflictions would be internal pressures pushing against you. Both can stop a bodhisattva, except the four-stage bodhisattva is like Vajra, cannot be stopped. How about that? At this stage. We know that at the first stage, fear is no longer part of the bodhisattva's makeup. 
because the fivefold fears are over for him or her. Here, demons are not able to move him or her. Interesting. Interesting. Um, here's a real life example of not being destroyed by afflictions. Remember Prop 37 back in November? Prop 37 was labeling genetically modified organisms. Remember that? And we were talking about it at the time and it was really a big deal because the challenge was simply to tell the consumer, you, as you walk down the aisles of Whole Foods, that this product contains soybeans, sorghum, corn, wheat that had Roundup mixed in it so that each seed was its own insecticide factory because BT virus, Bacillus thuringiensis, which kills insects, was part of the seed as it was created. So that farmers bought Roundup, this incredibly toxic, evil, poisonous stuff, sprayed on the field, and all the weeds that didn't have BT toxins in it would die and the Roundup Ready seeds would stand there because they were protected against it. They already had a tolerance in it. So that if your food had that poison in it, you would know. And you go, I don't want to buy that. Well, Monsanto, who makes all that poison and sells it, has such a grip on the food industry and the legislators who regulate the food industry, that they brought multi-million dollars weeks before Prop 37 went to a vote and flooded the airways with lies about it. That by requiring the labeling of these foods, simply this contains genetically modified organisms, would add $300 a week to your food bill, they said. And they said that this was a windfall for lawyers. That's who created this bill. Well, that's just not true. It was consumers like you and me who said, I want to know what's in my food. Duh. They tell you what percentage of fat is in there and where the fat came from. Why don't they tell you that Monsanto had a big part in creating the wheat, soybeans, and corn? Well, those ads by an expert who is not an expert, but is a hired lawyer whose last gig was to defend tobacco, right? It was Dr. Baker, is that his name? And he is a hired expert that appears in all these wrong-headed campaigns. He was defending smoking. Smoking is not harmful. That was his last time we saw him on TV. Well, they hired the same clown to come and tell you that labeling food labels, the way we already label food, was going to cost you $300 a week, right? Well, they flooded, that ad ran in the last three weeks of the election 10 times a day. Why? Because they could afford it. And they defeated the bill. 
So we don't know to this day what percentage of our food has Monsanto products in it. Furthermore, now there is a Monsanto protection bill that was tagged. You know all this? Do we want to talk about this? I don't know if that's your suit. I think it's in our best interest to know about it. Monsanto is now protected against any lawsuit by a law that passed Congress two weeks ago, tacked on as a last-minute rider to a Defense Department appropriations bill at the last minute. Snuck in there. And, of course, if you vote against that bill, you're voting against the Pentagon, which doesn't get voted against. So now you cannot attack Monsanto with... uh, with uh, public bills with you know, lawsuits and such. Monsanto is now immune to legal attack. So they're now enthroned. And you say, why is that true? It's because the head of the EPA, Environmental Protection, the head of the FDA, used to be president of Monsanto. Conflict of interest, who's paying attention? Anyway, there we go. So, just to say, one might get frustrated if you were trying to find out why so many babies come out with multiple allergies these days, food allergies. If you're a mom whose child has food allergies, suddenly your kid eats a school lunch and winds up in the emergency room because there were peanuts in it and you didn't know your kid was peanut allergic. Why... Do so many people have leaky gut syndrome and find themselves with rubella or autoimmune diseases that didn't exist before? And the evidence is now saying, yes, many of these brand new diseases have mysterious causes that have to do with genetically modified organisms. But they're introduced and we cannot test them now. We're not allowed to test them legally. First, one company's profit. And you go, now I'm on this tear because here at the monastery we've been educating ourselves about where our food comes from. And when you dig into it, you go, hey, this is not a good situation. Now, why do we allow ourselves, why do we make it legal for one company to dominate our food chain? And who's paying attention? Well, it turns out that it's now illegal to conduct certain tests on the food that we're eating because Monsanto's lawyers managed to slide that bill through. The Monsanto Protection Act of 2013. Good, that's real interesting. One of the best things to do is to eat organic. That's, we're, we're considering, we, we actually discussed it at lunch, whether or not we want to maybe um, make a lot of this information available to our Buddhist community and be a place where people get together to talk about where our food comes from. Because it's really important when it's touching our children who have autism. Autism spectrum disorder is this whole new, they call it a tsunami of illness. When your child turns out to have this disease that makes your life hell on earth. You can't take your kid to the grocery store because they wind up shouting and screaming on the floor because 
They can't filter out the sensations coming in through their six senses. Autism. Your child has to go to a special school, get on a special bus because they, they prefer to sit in the corner and pound their head on the wall. Autism. Where is that coming from? Could it be that it comes from the soybean and the corn that is in every product you buy? Right? What is it about declining fertility rates? That's one of the scariest ones of all. That when they take laboratory animals and feed them genetically modified food substances, their fertility drops off. The children that are coming, the, the next generation of these rats and, and animals, are weak, are disease-prone, are short-lived, have many birth defects. And you say, well, where did that come from? Say, well, could it, when you remove the genetically modified organism, the children come out healthy. And they go, why weren't these tested? And the answer is, it's illegal to test them. You go, wait one moment. So anyway, just to say, not to preach, not to get off on a rant, but this is a challenge to our future. And when Monsanto owns the seeds that would give you a choice. I don't want to plant your seeds. I'm sorry, there's no choice. Oh, they're safe, they're safe. They're safe. And then a big disease comes along, as will happen in nature, and wipes out one variety because it's a super bug, a super weed came in that was resistant to all of this, and it took over and killed all of the genetically weakened seeds. And you go, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any corn anymore. Corn is gone. Let's see what else we have to eat. I'm sorry, soybeans failed this year because, well, you know about that virus that took over all, you know, and you go, well, what about genetic diversity? Sorry, we've only got this choice. That's exactly where we're heading, and a wise person would go, uh, somebody should stop that. Go, eh, okay, how are we going to do that? People are going to do that. That's why we were talking about the possibility of making the monastery a place where we learn what's going on, that we study this. It's only people who will make a difference. We could have defeated Prop 37 if California had gone to labeling food completely instead of partially. The rest of the country would have followed. But we didn't because money talks, and the forces who were trying to get Prop 37 forward had a budget of $40,000 for advertising. Monsanto had 10 times that amount. They came up finally with $4 million for their advertising. And we came to four, four, 400000 You just add a zero. That's what, that's what won the election. And it wasn't too far away. So my point is, what if the Bodhisattva let affliction stop him and said, they won. What then? Not so good. Now, there is um, a food summit. I'm going to show you in a minute. John Robbins, Diet for New America, one of our American heroes, and his son, Ocean, um, have not given up. They haven't quit. They said, we're coming back. Monsanto has to be defeated. And, and DuPont and... There are four companies that are producing the 
the scary stuff for their own private income and that of their board of directors and stockholders. So John Robbins and Ocean Robbins, his son, are now conducting, starting today, a free online summit, food summit that lasts, I think, a week. You can join in, go online, listen to them, and they have a whole list of qualified, kind-hearted, far-seeing speakers who are talking about genetically modified organisms and how to eat to live a long time, how to eat what... um, (coughs) I love what Michael Pollan, one of our local uh, food writers and researchers, calls what you can buy in Safeway and Ralph's, what are called edible food-like substances in colorful packages, right? If you go down the the, the, the aisles of the grocery store, you see endless varieties of edible food-like substances in colorful packages. And those are the ones that you read the labels, you go, I don't believe this label. I don't trust this label. And then you go to Whole Foods, you go to Berkeley Bowl, or you go to to, uh, Farmer's Market, or you go to, what is it on Northside? What is it? Monterey Market. And you go down those aisles and you go, hey, look, there's a rutabaga. Oh, look, there's a, there's a peach. Like a, look at that. That's, I've forgotten what kale looked like. You hold up kale and it's going, eat me, eat me, I'm good. You know, and you go, ah, oh, that looks good. That's different. That's different. No package, right? You don't have to flip the kale over and read what's in it, you know. If you can't pronounce it, don't eat it. Right? On the label, you know, multi-diglyceride triphosphate. You, no, I don't want them. You know. So that's the choice that we have. And luckily in California, we have lots of choices. If you grow up in Toledo and you go to the A&P food store, you don't have that many choices, especially nine months out of the year when vegetables come wrapped in plastic from California three days later. <laughs> and they're expensive. You know. So... Just to say, the Bodhisattva doesn't give up. Afflictions cannot destroy her. She comes back. She comes back. Okay, a little bit more here. This Bodhisattva, among the four dharmas of attraction, emphasizes collaboration. Among the ten paramitas, she emphasizes vigor. She does not fail to cultivate the others, but she only does so according to her strength and her position. Okay, this line of the sutra identifies some of the, the rebar and the, the cement beneath these principles. That is to say, the four dharmas of attraction are some of the founding Buddha's dharmas, the founding principles that the Bodhisattva uses. Four dharmas of attraction, four ways to get close to people, four ways to make friends. Because the Bodhisattva depends on relationships in order to teach. And if he or she doesn't teach people to wake up, they, he, she doesn't become a Buddha. Right? It's shang cheng fu dao xia hua zhong sheng. Or closely, uh, distantly, ultimately I want to become a Buddha, but immediately I want to teach people. I want to turn my relationships wholesome. Right? Shang Cheng Fo Dao. It's not Shang Xia. It's ultimately, I want to become a Buddha. That's my goal. But immediately, to get to that goal, I'm going to 
hua zhong sheng, which means work with the people and beings around me to help them get beyond affliction. So they don't take affliction as their life, as the way, as status quo, right? That's what the Bodhisattva, that's the Bodhi resolve. That's the description of the Bodhi resolve. So, how do you do that? You have to get close to beings. What are they? Giving. Kind words. Collaboration. And, um, what's this one? Collaboration and uh, benefiting. Things that, giving other people the long part and you take the short part. So, those are the four. Giving, so you, you're generous and people remember that you helped, you gave them stuff. Kind words, you talk nicely. You say things that go into their hearts. They like your voice. They like listening to you. Um, helping people out. Coming to their need when they need it. And the last one is working together. When they have a tough job, you pitch in. An example of this one, collaboration, come to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery any Saturday morning. Go into the kitchen and you'll see collaboration. I'm amazed. I wanted to capture it on my camera this morning, but I, it, it moves too fast, which was I came in and from the cupboard on the left to the first sink to the dish drainer to the refrigerator, to the second sink, to the stove and the island, there were women standing there working. Bum, 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 and then around the island. There were 12 bodies in there, everybody at a task, silently. Just work. I mean, they were talking, but they weren't like, they weren't talking, socializing. It was like they're working to bring out this incredible food. You know, and there it was. And I had the backs of all these. And I thought, man, I need it. Where's my camera? I had incense in my hand. And I didn't, didn't want to swap the incense for a camera. But I would have got the, these, this room of people collaborating, bringing out this food. Amazing, you know, how that works. And everybody had their job. And they, nobody was fighting to be number one. There were no queens of the kitchen. We have done without a kitchen queen all this time. I'm so pleased. You go to other monasteries, the kitchen queen is fierce. You all bow to her. If you don't bow to her, you don't work in that kitchen. Or you get, you do, but you're miserable, right? Oh, I have been in monasteries where there are multiple kitchen queens. Whoa. Bloodshed, I swear. Oh, all-out campaigns to defame the reputation of that one, you know. Miserable. And we so far, omi tofo, omi tofo, have avoided the kitchen queen. Kitchen queens somehow don't stay here because there's no reward for them. We don't support kitchen queens. And people work together, and it's fantastic to see that process work, right? It's And it's hard work, I'm sure, but... I think it's cultivation that makes it possible. So, that's one. Four dharmas of attraction. The Bodhisattva on the fourth ground emphasizes number four, collaboration. Among the ten paramitas, we talked about this, vigor is the one. This is vigor paramita. And it's not the case that the Bodhisattva doesn't cultivate one, two, and three of the dharmas and the other nine paramitas, but he or she does so 
according to her strength and according to her position. Position meaning where they are vis-a-vis the other ten grounds. So first stage bodhisattvas cultivate according to their strength. Tenth stage according to their strength. All right, uh, one more. Flip over, flip over. Page 20. We're going to do one line here. Disciples of the Buddha, this is known as the general discussion of the Bodhisattva Mahasattva's fourth ground, blazing wisdom. Yes, indeed. And we're going, we have a, a lot to cover in the next half hour. So, things I wanted to share. So, let's transfer the merit first. Let's see how we're doing here. Sounds good. Tuning all 12 strings is a process. We're okay. So, you have... In front of you, one of these gadgets? Yes, you do. Good. Turn to the back. Singing the Dharma. I didn't have this friend in Australia, and so for three and a half months I wasn't able to have that sensation I just had. Um, You should know that vibrating these 12 strings when you have an instrument as magnificent as this 12-string guitar, is quite an experience. And it's, I won't say addicting, but it's a, it's a familiar vibration when you go, you know, go. It's the experience behind the guitar is quite something. And uh, I missed it. I missed it. And... I had very nice guitars in Australia, but not that. And it puts a, a sound in your bloodstream that's that is hard to do without. So, anyway, it's nice to be back. Hope you're well. Yes, yes. Um, China, Taiwan has its first case of avian flu. Somebody from Suzhou. Who, somebody from Taiwan who goes to Suzhou, a 59-year-old businessman, went to Suzhou, got the bird flu, came back to Taiwan. And every one of the 128 people he contacted, they've got, Taiwan is not messing around with SARS anymore. So they learned for SARS. So there's a new, what is it, H9B, what is it called? H. Anybody know? You're not paying attention to the new avian flu? Hundred and there are bunches of cases in China, and China is trying hard. They're not. They're past those days of hiding it. And anyway, it's now in Taiwan for the first time, and the, the Taiwanese have got every person that this guy contacted in quarantine. But it's there, and it kills you. It's it's the the new bird flu. So let's transfer the merit with the wish that um, it the people number one stop eating chicken. And two, that it can be contained because it's it's not a joke, and uh, we hope that that our karma is not such that we have to deal with it much. So, 
So transfer your merit however you would like to, please. was it while I was gone? Well, it was really tough. Tough? Yeah. You ever get cramped into a suitcase with a moose? No. That's really tough. That moose, you know, he's, he's got gas, so bad, you know. I think he eats too much, doesn't chew it, just kind of swallows it. Well, we were in that suitcase with all the other puppets and a big moose. Man, oh man, that was tough. We had to, you know, ask him to leave for a while, you know. And what else? Well, uh, all those puppets there in there, and you know how they gossip? No. Yeah. They say, he's never going to play with us. He's not coming back. Did you tell him I was in Australia? Yeah, but they wouldn't believe me. Right? They said, yeah, he's gone off to play with the kangaroos, you know, and forgot all about us. Boy, I hope you set him straight. Well, I tried my best. You're, you're faithful, huh? Yeah, you know. I mean, I look at you too, but I, I, when I see all these people out here, I, I, it gives me strength, faith, you know, faith. Good for you. I appreciate that. Well, lion-hearted, you know. What do you expect? That's what you were doing there on the Warner Brothers set. 
Faithful. You know, yeah, good. Lion-hearted. I like that. So what else? Well, uh, you know, we talk about the Dharma in there in the suitcase, and, and uh, it's dark in there. I guess being a puppet, you kind of spend a lot of time, you know, in the dark, hoping somebody's going to play with you. So what would you like to say to everybody tonight? If you have puppets at home or, you know, teddy bears, play with them, you know. If, if they don't have kids to play with, you, you adults, go back to your childhood and play with your puppets, your, your stuffed animals. Get out your teddy bears and your, your kitty cats, you know, and, and run them around a little bit. They, they appreciate it. But don't let them gossip, you know. Gossip's dangerous. Like what? Oh, you know, they say think, things like, ah, uh, uh, you know, there's no heaven for puppets, things like that, you know. Puppets don't have the Buddha nature. They talk about that, you know. Would you set them straight? No, I said every puppet's got a Buddha nature. But you've got to play with them before it comes out. That's good. What do you want to be in the future? I want to be, uh, should I tell you? Yeah, go ahead. I want to be Manjushri's lion. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, we, you know, over there. Yeah, Manjushri's lion. He's, you know, he gets to ride around on me and... Uh, and I hear about Prajnana, I'm not afraid. Good grief, I didn't realize you had such samadhi. Yeah, you know, lion heart, lion sprint. But I, I do wish you'd kind of let us out and uh, that moose, you know, he needs his own suitcase. Okay, okay, got it. All right, all right good, thank you. Trustworthy lion. Okay, we're going to hook up the projector and show you some pictures and tell you some stories. So can we get those lights, please? Okay. Oh, isn't it funny? Every projector picks its own desktop. That's so funny. Uh, it's true. The color is off there. Oh, there it is. This is the... Uh, the projector picked this desktop. <laughs> it's a single kookaburra. Isn't he handsome? And what I wanted to show you was I wanted this desktop, which is, oh my goodness, it changes everything. Okay, here we go. Wait, wait, wait. Let's see if it's going to do it. Add a folder there. Yes, there we are. This is the one I wanted to show you. These birds showed up as I was leaving. And uh, just the, the, the day before I left. And I had the distinct impression that they were saying goodbye. And it's funny. Notice, here's the female. She has a smooth head. Here's the male. He's got that kind of 
what do you say, Woody Woodpecker kind of comb here in the back. And uh, he's got different coloring. He's got blue feathers, and she doesn't. Now, um, these, these birds come in pairs, and they travel in pairs. So anyway, that's a fun desktop. Um, what I wanted to share with you was, uh, one, a slideshow, and two, oh, I've got to hook something up here. Um, some of the stories that came from my class. And I, I'll, I'll show you first and I'll tell you. I'm only now uh, filtering the photos that I took, which were numerous, and also Jason. Jason Kong, our, our Dharma friend, followed me to, um, from Singapore, came back to Gold Coast and spent um, quite a bit of time there. And Jason has been uh, doing some real serious photography. And these are a hundred of his favorite slides from what he witnessed. And I just wanted to share them with you today. One of our neighbors. And this is one of our neighbors and my, one of my students. It's getting sorted out here. Now, the student is this one, not this one. <laughs> this is Alexandra. Uh, she's a local uh, Gold Coast resident who is a law student at Bond University, and she's going into animal protection, animal rights. She's a vegetarian, and she is a volunteer here at Corumban Wildlife Sanctuary. She's got her uniform on. And her job, now eat your hearts out. What kind of a job do you want as a volunteer? Her job is to work with the koala photos. She's in the koala photo booth. This is her counterpart, one of her colleagues. Notice she's wearing a black uh, sleep protector. That's so that her skin doesn't show up in the koala pictures. But it's also to keep her, uh, koalas have poopy butts and uh, it keeps her safe. But look at the, look at the poise of the koala. Isn't that koala charming? Just, he just loves hamming for the camera, right? So, there we go. This is, uh, when any of you come to visit in Gold Coast, we're going to take you to Corumban, because look what you get. You get birds of prey, koalas, wombats, dingoes, cockatoos, jabiru's, echidnas, and wildlife presentations. <laughs> what fun. You don't get that even in Berkeley. Berkeley's got a lot of weird stuff, but we don't have jabiru's and echidnas. Here's a wild pelican coming for his feeding. Outstanding birds. This is a pelican getting fed at the Free Flight Bird Show. They train these wild birds to come in on time for their retreat, for their rewards, their feeding. This is a wedge-tailed eagle, the largest bird in all of Australia. It's a predator, that is to say it's a carnivore, but they're about 
to be ex- made extinct because the, the word is out among the farmers that these birds eat, pick up sheep and they don't, but they were killed by the millions because they, they, they take off slowly. They have to do like flap, 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 flap to get an airborne and farmers love to shoot them. You see this wedge tail? These are incredibly beautiful birds and they're nearly gone. So Corumban is trying to re-educate. This is Bond University, where I taught uh, my second semester, and I'll be doing there again. Dharma Master Hung Chur uh, is all on the faculty there. And it's, it's a very scenic campus, just uh, five minutes from the ocean coast. This is looking towards the ocean. Uh, this is looking away. The ocean is behind us. These are the mountains of the uh, interior. So that's looking west, right behind is the ocean. Beautiful campus. Jason is shooting all of these with his Nikon 1 V1, his little mirrorless camera. Beautiful photography. (coughs) This is, uh, I go up to the the fourth floor for my class. Lecturing on topics in Buddhist philosophy to, for 22 20-year-olds, mostly. 19 and 20-year-old college undergraduates. And of the 22, 15 are from the U.S., interestingly enough. So only five uh, are Aussies. Here are three girls from the University of New Hampshire, and there's one other. Four out of 22 came from this tiny school. I mean, it's not a tiny school, but it's uh, relatively speaking. New Hampshireans don't show up in Gold Coast, Australia all that often, you know. They all wind up in my Buddhist philosophy class. How's that? This is uh, Michael, who was a baseball catcher until he had a career-ending injury. And he's also got his skydive wristband. So <laughs> when American exchange students come to Australia, they, they go to New Zealand and do bungee jumping. They do skydiving. They do surfing, river rafting, and all these uh, amazing death-defying things that somehow they can't do in St. Louis, you know, and in uh, Detroit. So this is Jason's, this is a movie. We're going to go beyond this one here. So uh, These are uh, two buddies. He enrolled in the class first, and his roommate uh, needed another elective, and so his, he got recruited. And I'll, uh, I'm going to read you some of the things that these two guys wrote about their experience of Buddhist philosophy. Here, here's the scene in the class. Students from Canada, Toronto, um, Holland, from Netherlands, from um, Norway. One young man grew up on a mountain farm in Norway. And here's Blake, who's from Australia. He's Australian. He grew up in Perth, Western Australia. 
the scene. Now, what I think is, the reason why I think this is interesting is, because I use crows to teach the Dharma. That's not, that's not why it's interesting. It's interesting because all of these uh, young people are completely mainstream, normal 20-year-olds. Some are, the oldest was 30. Um, and they... Now, if you did a zoom in, you might discover half of them are on Facebook. You might discover that, but we're going to assume they're not. What you discover is that these kids are, these young people have had no exposure to Buddhism at all. So everything that they, uh, all their responses came from um, fresh, from, from zero. It all started from zero, learning about the Dharma. This, by the way, is Christine, and she lives in Sacramento, or actually in just across the, uh, the, the line in, in Nevada, so we're hoping that she'll be showing up with her mom. Uh, she, she may be here soon. So, All right. So this is, these are Jason's photos. Oh, here's a dingo. Speaking, learning to speak Australian. Uh, okay, uh, Dharma lectures in Singapore and the refuges and the precepts. We're now at Gold Coast Dharma Realm. This is the monastery in uh, Gold Coast and it's about a 15-minute drive from Surfer's Paradise, which is the, the high-rise and casino center of Queensland. Uh, the Gold Coast is famous for for holidays, for gambling, for you know expensive five star hotels and all, but it's a narrow strip developed originally by the Japanese when they were rich in the 80s, and now maintained by Chinese triads, Russian gangsters, and Japanese yakuza, who have money to come and gamble, and that's it. It's just this strip. It's when you fly over in a plane, it looks like Miami Beach, and you go you know 30 seconds that way, and it's bush forest so it's it's a very funny place to have this this narrow strip of life in the fast lane and the rest of australia which is just you know 40 years behind california anyway nice buddha image there it is that's our that's a new buddha actually yuanlin was there so yuanlin spent uh almost a week at gold coast and will testify that everything I am saying is true. It's a very nice, it's an Indonesian Buddha image. That's the Buddha hall in the background. Here's the Buddha hall. Australian architecture from the bush. Here's the, the main altar. Very nice image. This projector does well from the re- rendering, the color that I'm seeing and the color that you're seeing. Very nice. This is Hung Mingshir, who is one of the staff, one of the, the, the two full-time, three full-time nuns there. The drum. Here I am uh, transmitting the, the refuges and precepts.
Gui Jung. The refuge certificate. There's Hung Ming. The other nun is Jin Fu Shi. Um, some of you know her. She was the laywoman in Taiwan who created the Zhihui Zhiyuan, source of wisdom newspaper for a long time. She was, um, these are uh, mother, daughter, and then daughter-in-law. Uh, let's see, granddaughter, granddaughter. She's bored. <laughs> She's like, is it over yet? This, people, did you, any of you meet Karina when she came? This is Karina White. Her dad, she's a dentist, and her dad is head of the Buddhist Council in New South Wales down in Sydney. And Karina came with Hung Chir last year. She was here driving her around. She's uh, a bright light coast very interested in the Dharma here's her dad Brian this is the, the one and this is Karina's mom from Malaysia who uh, took refuge in precepts she is a Theravada Buddhist who came across to take refuge in the Mahayana this time so this is Karina's here's Karina here's her dad here's her mom here's the the gang Here's the mom, Layin. She took refuge in precepts. Here's Brian, and here's Karina. Here's Jin Fu sure. And who is this? That's Fam. Right? Jin Nai. Jin Nai Shi. There she is. She is very much a part of the community there, having a, a fine time. She can garden to her heart's content. There's endless gardening there. And things grow. So here's Jin Nai. This is the white family. This is a Chinese student at Bond who took refuge. Now this is Sam. We hope that you'll get to meet Sam this summer, maybe at uh, Buddha Root Farm. Sam is the local uh, layperson Dharma protector. His name is Ong, Ong Kun Sam. Very Hanfashin, uh, here he is requesting Dharma. Sam is from Aylor Star, originally, in Malaysia, and uh, a very good guy. Here's Rosalind, uh, who was actually the person who created Gold Coast, along with Peter Nye, who just passed away. Here's Pham Chin Nye. These are movies. We're going to go buy these quickly. There she is. And look what she's got in her box. He's, uh, he needs uh, an encouragement to go outside. Some of the yummy, yummy food that they serve there. Who would think that ve vegetarians don't suffer? You know, we don't suffer eating food like that. This is a magpie, an Australian magpie. has a magnificent vocabulary, can speak all these words. This is a cane toad, not magnificent. Cane toads are poisonous, and they have no natural enemies. And so they are everywhere, everywhere. 
What's that? Uh, they have poison on their backs. This, this, there's poison here, and things that eat them die. So, and they are so prolific that Aussies kill them with golf clubs. They just go out at every chance they get and just thump, thump. They, they aim their cars at them when they see them on the road. Okay, end of show. Here's the signpost when you come in the front door. That's the end of the, the slideshow. And so those, this is Jason's, Jason Kung's favorites. Now, the time, it's officially 9.30. It's time to stop. But I wanted to, sh- if you don't mind, if, if I could, I'd like to share with you um, just a little bit more. Um, my final exam that I gave my students, I want to show you what they were asked and then what they responded, how they responded. Not there. Uh, Here it is. Here's what I asked. So I want you to see kind of the, uh, the realm, the, the scope of the things that I passed on. And I have to say, at the beginning of the class, I wasn't all that enthusiastic. I, I wanted to write a book. That's what I wanted to do. And I wound up not doing as much on the book as I wanted because I actually started to enjoy the teaching. So this is a... They, Students pay, the tuition is so expensive at Bond, every two-hour class is about $300. Multiply that by 13, you know. So this is a real class and real grades and real, you know, credits and all. So, final exam. This is an open book take-home final. You are expected to write on three of five topics. That actually became four of five topics. If you write on five, you'll get extra credit. Read each topic carefully. Select the ones you wish to write about. You're expected to review the teaching materials found on iLearn course content weekly posting. There's, it's computer, there's a, a website where a lot of the slideshows get posted. When you write, be sure to cover all that's asked for in the topic. It's best to first write a draft, then come back to the draft to be sure you've addressed the topic adequately, your answers are organized, your points made clear, and your resources cited. Number one, you can choose to write about this. (coughs) Applying ahimsa, non-harming, in dietary choices. Discuss philosophical approaches to diet, the effects of dietary choices on the planet and on our compassionate natures. Read week six's material posted on iLearn, Diet for New America on YouTube, and relate ahimsa and great compassion to the issues raised by John Robbins in his work. Two, a PowerPoint presentation on vegetarian plant-based eating, first presented at the Parliament of World's Religions in Melbourne. People will know who were, who've been following. That's a slideshow I did there. A PowerPoint presentation on humanity's spiritual relationship with animals in two parts, first given to the VegSource.com Healthy Lifestyle Expo in L.A. Present a convincing case for the positive aspects of ahimsa non-harming as it applies to self and others and to the environment. Now, notice, I'm not saying be a vegetarian. This is an academic analytical course. 
but I'm asking people to look at the material that I presented and then discuss philosophical approaches to, to diet. What does it mean to, to eat a harmless diet? One. Two. Sutras. Annotate important points in the Metta Sutta. This is what should be done, right? And I gave it below. With your own prose commentary or verse explanation or other poetic form and with reference to relevant Buddhist concepts you've absorbed. Show the structure and the development of the sutta's three parts and the core analogy of the mother with her child. Refer to the three slide presentations available in week 10's materials. Show how the function of the Buddha's sutra discourses is exemplified by the Metta Sutta. Now, remember we did um, Lord of the Rings with the Metta Sutta. We did Harry Potter with the Metta Sutta. We did Spider-Man with the Metta Sutta. I've showed you all those over the years. I gave him all those and said, you know, look at the three parts. So that was a choice. And here's the Metta Sutta. Meditation. Discuss meditation. Consider such aspects as purpose, why meditate, method, what are the differences between vipassana breath counting and metta contemplation? Challenges, how to deal with physical limitations when your knees hurt. D, initial impression, what was it like to meditate? Subsequent impression, as you meditated more. Other aspects you prefer to address in your description. You could write on that. Four, precepts. Introduce the Buddha's five precepts to a family member or a friend, somebody with whom you speak easily. Explain their intent. Take one position and advocate it. If you have reservations, explain them frankly, if you like to introduce them. Oh, if you like to introduce them as Buddhists explain them, and then how they make sense to you. Precepts lead to liberation from suffering, and therefore their restraints on normal behavior are worth the effort. B, precepts represent an ideal of human behavior that might have been suitable for another time or culture, but fall short now because you might want to write that. Three, if certain precepts could be altered or adapted, they might be more suitable or practical for contemporary people. So I'm giving people ways to talk about killing, stealing, lust, etc. And five, discuss any thoughts that have changed since you began to study Buddhist philosophy. Talk about any new perspectives or expanded outlooks, especially with regards to any three of the following topics. And here's a list of everything I presented in the course. Discovering freedom's limits in light of birth and death. Resist or accept mortality. Think of Siddhartha. Prince Siddhartha's decision. Two, ten evil deeds, ten good deeds. Do they help you? Do they restrict you? Interdependence arising from tongti dabe, same body, great compassion. Reincarnation. Filiality, repaying kindness. Ahimsa, non-harming. Storytelling as a primary means for carrying on wisdom and values. Eight, the Bodhi resolve. Humanity's aspiration to reach liberation through ending suffering for all being. Bodhisattvas, their unselfish hearts and their vigorous practices. Ten, daring to challenge authority when a culture's founding myths do not fit. Personally, I heard the teachings of Sunday school and said, that's not my story. And I had to go look. So there's a little bit of autobiography in this one. A new masculine identity that's neither macho nor herbivore, but based on kindness and strength of virtue. Eleven, precepts as doors to liberation, not as obstacles to freedom. And twelve, who's in charge of my life? How do I become the architect of my future? Okay, those are some of the topics I suggested. So you can write about those. What has changed? Precepts, meditation, sutras, and 
kind heart, uh, harmless eating. All right. So I wanted to share with you some of the stories that came back. Um, okay, this one came from a young woman who um, is an athlete. She, I won't tell you who, but not that you know her, but, um, oops, not this one. Different one. Um, she is uh, not somebody who at the start of the class I would have thought was going to um, wake up. Uh, I thought she was pretty much a jock, you know. Uh, But look, I just wanted to share with you. She chose to write about ahimsa, harmless eating, metta meditation, and meditation. So she took one, two, three, and then changing perspectives. And this, when we're done with this, we're done tonight. This Buddhist philosophy class has changed my perspective on many things. Three changes stand out to me in particular. My perspectives on diet, storytelling, and filiality have all matured. These changes are certainly beneficial, and they led me to take a different view on important factors in my life. Over the past few years, I've read books and watched documentaries about the current state of the American diet. All were sad and horrific, but they did not convince me to stop buying meat. I made an effort to buy local meat that I knew was treated well. I never ate fast food, but I did not truly deal with my emotions on the subject. I felt that with my high level of exercise, I needed meat to stay healthy. Many of the films we watched in class present a material that I'd seen before, and as always, they tugged at my heartstrings. I found the film about the vegan firefighter Iron Man particularly intriguing. That's Rip Esselstyn, right? Engine 2. Then came the words of an author whose book I picked up but had never finished reading. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Michael Pollan's statement stuck in my mind all day. I went home that night and searched him on YouTube, and I found a speech he gave at Williams College on the American diet. His point was that humans are meant to be omnivores, but in reality, most of what we consume is corn. This was the breaking point for me. I decided to become pescatarian, fish. I felt healthier and cleaner, found myself furiously reading ingredient lists. This lasted for a month and a half, but I've recently begun to eat meat again sparingly. With my level of exercise and my limited food options abroad, it was not a healthy decision for me. However, I fully intend on returning to this lifestyle upon returning home. Storytelling has also resurfaced as an interest in my life. I love to read. My dad would read out loud to me every night before I went to bed when I was little. I remember Aesop's fables. I could probably recite most of them by heart if prompted. Children's stories have remarkable value. However, in my years exploring the Episcopalian faith, Quakerism, and even atheism, thanks to a high school philosophy class, stories that resonated were few and far between. Most were about people many years ago. They were dense and abstract. I could not grasp the morals if they were not applied to a personal story but I truly enjoyed listening to the stories presented in this class about growing up in middle America. They felt real. I could picture myself in similar circumstances. I found myself taking more away from those discussions than I had in the past. This has taught me to listen closer to the stories of other people around me because often they hold bits of wisdom. Personal stories can surprise you. Finally, while we mostly discussed filiality in terms of parental relationships, I found myself thinking about it with regards to my brothers. 
I have a fantastic relationship with both of my parents. We're open about most things, and I make an effort to express my gratitude. However, my parents are not the only ones who shape me into who I am today. My two older brothers gave me so much growing up. Most of my time was spent either tagging along with them or talking to my friends about how cool they were. But things change, and I no longer see them every day. In fact, I only see my brothers several times a year, and we're not very good about keeping in touch. My relationship has deteriorated with one of my brothers to a point that's troubling for me. This class has made me realize both how much they've done for me and that I have a deep longing to repay this kindness. Thanks to this class, communication paths have opened up again with my brothers. All right. There you go. That's, that's honest. You know, that's the kind of story that will stick with you. So I felt like it was worth it. You know, and that's just one of some that are really touching. One young woman, only one, said the most important thing she got from the class is a relationship with Guanyin Bodhisattva. She said that ever since she heard about Guanyin, it completely made sense to her, and she realized how much she had been missing and needing a relationship with Guanyin or someone like her. And uh, this is a young woman who grew up Ukrainian, speaking Ukrainian in Canada. Interesting. So that's, uh, these are some of the gems that, uh, that are the rewards. If you teach, this is, it's rare to get this kind of, of direct feedback. So I'm, I'm really blessed to have heard that. All right, time is up. And I'm sorry to, to misjudge the time to take you so late. And I hope everybody gets home safely. But uh, thank you for staying with me. And let's run the screen up and we'll bow to the Buddhas. See you next week for further adventures in the fourth ground. Oh, um, yeah, correct. That's it. Oh, I know, I know. Story, Tiance. Tuesday night, Tiance Tea Shop. Tea and Dharma, 730 at 4th Street, Tiance Tea Shop, please come. Um, there's going to be a chance to, to explore uh, some topics that we'll go deeply into. Music and puppets. See you then.